heads up, listener. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about mental illness, and there will be brief mentions of other potentially triggering things, like sexual violence and the end of life. If you're not ready to listen to that, skip ahead to the next one. It's 2022 and therapy is trending. We're living in a time when people are putting things like therapy is sexy onto sweatshirts for goodness sake. And still, even in these times, Forbes reported that 47% of Americans believe that seeking therapy is a sign of weakness. How can that possibly be? Well, if you've ever been the first person you know to deal with something, you get it. It's hard to talk about something before you have the language to do it or the social support. And add the fear of sharing the thing you're going through and being met with silence. That's what living in stigma feels like. But what does being stigmatized actually do to you? What's the harm? According to psychiatry.org, stigma is the idea that a person with mental illness is dangerous, incompetent, or to blame for their mental illness. And if you're living with a stigmatized mental illness or disorder, stigma holds you back. You're less likely to seek help or treatment and way less likely to stick with the treatment. You're more likely to socially isolate and you experience a lack of understanding by family and friends, coworkers, or others. You have fewer opportunities at work, school, or activities. You're more likely to experience bullying, physical violence, or harassment. And health insurance doesn't adequately cover your needs. You also are met with the pervasive belief that you'll never succeed at certain challenges or can't improve your situation. Stigma is hopelessness. It trains us to believe that we are all alone and the only person who's gone through the thing we're going through. This is Gina Anderson Cohen, by the way, and I'm the founder and CEO of A Sweat Life. And when I hear stigma described, it sounds an awful lot like the Dementors in Harry Potter, which brought on those feelings of hopelessness. And I never read the books, I only saw the movies. This is We Got Goals, by the way. So this week, I spoke with Ariana Alejandra Gibson, Ariana is a documentary filmmaker, a mental health activist, who spent her early career as a creative director and brand strategist for companies ranging from tech startups to Fortune 500s. She is the founder and CEO of The Stigma App, a new mental health tool that uses storytelling to fight loneliness and improve mental health. She's also one of the 46% of Americans who will personally experience mental illness in their lifetime and believes the only way to normalize conversation about mental health is to actually be brave enough to have them. To hear Ariana describe it succinctly, it's a marketplace for hope. And Ariana shares very openly about where the platform came from. Her father's schizophrenia, her husband's childhood trauma, and the death of one of her best friends. And that means that every time she talks about the platform, she has to open up about all of that. She gets to, or has to, model living a life outside of stigma every single day. I can't wait for you to hear everything Ariana has to say. Here's my interview with Ariana. This is Gina Anderson Cohen on We Got Goals. I'm here with Ariana Alejandra Gibson. She's the founder of the Stigma app and so much more. Ariana. Tell me why you care about stigma. I know this is a deep question to start with. 
No, I think it's a fair question. Um, I sort of like to say that I didn't have a choice. Um, it was something that was part of my life, whether I wanted it to be or not, because I was born in Costa Rica to a father with schizophrenia. So um, schizophrenia is a serious mental illness. It's something that people are definitely afraid of. And I learned at a very young age, just saying that word was something that triggered a response in people that made me feel uncomfortable and made me feel worried and I confused and I just knew it didn't feel good. And so it was something that affected my own behavior for many, many years in terms of just not talking about it because I didn't want to deal with the reactions. And I think a lot of what I've built um, and a lot of the sort of ideas I've had just leading up to building stigma have sort of all been related to that understanding of what it feels like, the loneliness you can feel when you're carrying this thing that people don't understand. It's really interesting that you understood so young that schizophrenia is something, and I'm putting air quotes around this for the listeners that we don't talk about. Because uh, I think kids kids know, right? When adults shut them down, when other people shut them down, that we don't talk about this, and then they just shut it off. Absolutely. And I've um, been lucky enough to be able to interview some child psychologists and child therapists. And one of the things they talk about is um, children lacking the vocabulary to express how they're feeling, but it doesn't mean they're not feeling it. And it doesn't mean they won't have reactions. So um, when a child goes to the nurse all the time or has tummy aches a lot or headaches, a lot of child therapists will talk about those are signals. Um, and what we need to do as parents in every way outside of just stigma and talking about mental health is model, is be good role models and show them that it's absolutely okay to talk about how we're feeling, that it's very human and normal to have good days and bad. I think we're still far away from where we need to be, but the world is certainly changing and it's helping expose people at a younger age um, to these topics because they're going to be experiencing it, whether we're talking about it or not. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about two separate things that are very interrelated. We're going to be talking about stigma, the concept, uh, which we're we're getting into now. We're also going to be talking about stigma, the platform, which you've built um, as a technology platform, as an app. Um, so as we're sort of building that baseline, Ariana, do you want to explain stigma, the platform, how you built it, why you built it, and where you're at? Yeah, um, and it's a bit of a long story. So if you'll <laughs> give me a little space, I want to make sure that I sort of help people understand where it came from because what I'm hearing in feedback right now is like, you just you nailed it. You found this thing that like, it feels so good. And I think that can only happen when you build something from a place of deep understanding and having lived the experience yourself. So, um, you know, I mentioned what uh, the situation was with my father. I had anxiety as a child, but didn't know what it was. I remember being young and um, every night before bed, I just didn't want to go to bed and I'd be scared. And my mom would say, well, what are you scared of? And I would say, I don't know. And the fact that she didn't have the answer for what would make me feel better made me even more scared. And I can look back now and go, oh, that was just anxiety starting. Um, an interesting data point is that 46% of Americans will personally experience mental illness. And 50% of those people will have felt their first symptom by the time they're 14. So when wow. we think about that language we give people and sort of um, the spaces we create for people to feel okay talking about it, it's really, really important to do it for children. But it was not something that I experienced. I was born in the 80s, um, growing up in the 90s. One of the things that I'll point out to people now is I, I was always a storyteller. Um, there's this story, like a joke in my family or a story that we bring up a lot that um, when I was young, my birthday was sort of on the cusp of when you could go to kindergarten or not. And they wouldn't let me go. My mom was like advocating for it. And a year later, I'm finally in kindergarten. And my mom gets a call at work from the principal and she's so worried. And they said, Miss Vargas, we have a problem. She said, what is it? And she said, your daughter is reading to the other kindergartners. And so we always <laughs> joke, like, I don't remember it, but like about me, like holding court and these kids, you know, sitting around. But I think um, I have teachers in my family. I have entrepreneurs in my family, like on both sides. 
And so I loved storytelling. So I um, went to school pre-med, thought that I was going to do that, ended up switching to being a film major. And my senior year, I shot a documentary. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And it was a documentary about how schizophrenia affects the family unit. So it was absolutely a cathartic exercise. And also the bravest I could possibly be was to tell a story about someone else's connection to schizophrenia. I don't even know that I was talking about the fact that my father had schizophrenia at the time. Um, So it was a learning exercise, but it was also something that felt really good to do. And I started realizing in that moment, there aren't a lot of stories like this. Um, There's a fabulous TED Talk by a a Nigerian author named Chimamanda Adichie, and it's called The Danger of a Single Story. And I reference it a lot because I like to talk about with mental health, um, there there weren't a lot of stories um, in the world when I was younger. And so we can't blame human beings when we talk about stigma, the theme you can't blame people for basing their perspective on things, on the lived experience they've had, things they've personally experienced, um, and the stories they consume. And so when I was younger, I always say the only stories you could consume about schizophrenia were on Law & Order in the evening news. There weren't good stories. They weren't representative in any accurate way of the lived experience of someone with schizophrenia. So, of course, when someone heard that word, they thought of you know a character they had seen on TV. So a lot of what we've built with Stigma app is a place where stories can be shared that have um, the same tone. So because we are you know shooting the interviews and doing the edit, um, we make sure that they're honest but hopeful because it's it's not okay to sugarcoat certain things about living with mental illness that are really challenging. Um, and it's specifically those things that when you say I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to talk about it without shame. Um, that make other people feel less alone because those are the things no one's talking about. And if you're a Brene Brown fan, you know, she says that um, shame can only survive in secrecy and silence and that um, empathy is the antidote to shame. So um, in a lot of ways, I feel like the way to think about Stigma app is a place to go to find people who share your lived experience um, and be able to kind of engage in the way you want. Because what we also know is that it takes time. It takes time to feel comfortable talking about for me, having anxiety disorder and panic attacks. Um, I didn't I didn't comfortably talk about that even three years ago. Now I open pitches with it and make people raise their hand <laughs> um, if they are one of the 46% club. Um, but we let people engage by watching stories of others like them so they can get that living proof that they're not alone. Um, and if and when they're ready, we enable them to communicate with each other, um, but not in a kind of DM forum situation because there are a lot of Facebook groups and there are a lot of companies that are creating these Um, Facebook-like spaces for mental health, we are really um, a marketplace whose whose currency is hope. Um, Because what I know and what I think anyone who's ever struggled with anything, you don't have to have a mental illness knows, is that some days are good and some are bad. Um, And you can have a great friend and family network and a therapist and all the tools in your toolkit to maintain your mental health. But some days you just kind of want someone to say, I see you. I understand what you're going through because I've gone through that too. um, And it's going to be okay. And that's really what it is. So people come on our platform and they can use text, audio, or video messages, um, and they can ask for or offer messages of hope. The really cool thing is that we're starting to see like the engagement data because we only launched December 18th. Um, And right now, every ask for hope gets an average of four and a half offers. So it's just so beautiful to watch these people get these messages and send thank yous and just feel seen. And they say that they say, I feel validated. I feel heard. I feel seen. I've never met anyone else who has this condition. So it's, it's a really um, lovely opportunity to create reciprocal social connection. Honestly. (laughs) And I know, I know that there uh, is so much more you could, you could talk about when it comes to stigma um, to the, the app. And thank you for sharing the story of how you started. I also know that you had a friend um, who, 
essentially encouraged you um, to go and pursue this thing. Do you want to talk about that? Or do you not feel like crying at eight in the morning? No, I, I love any opportunity to talk about Lauren. So um, I say that I hit the like the roommate jackpot in college. You know how you'll get a, a random selection freshman roommate if you don't know someone going there. So I was had grown up in Kansas City. I was going to Boston College, um, met my roommate, you know, beforehand on a phone call, I think it was. Um, and she was just, we were kindred spirits. We were very similar people. We both um, loved building people and making them feel proud of themselves and just um, kind of this committed to kindness idea we talk about with stigma. She and I had that together. Um, so she was very much like a sister. I have a wonderful sister, but it was like, I got a bonus extra sister. Um, and we were each other's bridesmaids and there for big moments in life and just a, a beautiful friendship. Um, and in 2019, she was diagnosed with a, a very aggressive and very rare cancer. Um, it was, you know, for, for the women listening who have navigated um, infertility or trying to get pregnant, you know, in my case, we tried for a year, um, nothing was happening, made a fertility appointment, and then I got pregnant the week of the appointment. It was just sort of serendipitous and wonderful. But I went through that experience of, of not knowing if it was going to happen for me and kind of the emotional load that women are carrying. And that's a topic on, on our platform that people are um, starting to get into a lot. Um, but Lauren was in that position um, trying to get pregnant. It had been a while and it turned out that she had, um, they found that she had undifferentiated uterine sarcoma, which none of us had ever heard of before. Um, and in her case, and I like telling the story sort of the longer version of it because people are going through these things and not talking about it. And she was going through that, um, got this diagnosis and in one day, was told we have to do a, a radical hysterectomy. So she lost her ability to biologically have children in the same day she was told, you might not survive this cancer. And so there wasn't time to mourn that loss. It was like, get on board with fighting the cancer. Um, it required a ton of energy um, mentally and emotionally. And she, we have a great um, support group and friend group that was uh, around her, but that was um, June she was diagnosed. And by December, nothing was working. So everything they were trying wasn't, wasn't really working. And um, she and I had a conversation in December and it's one that I'm like really honored that she was willing to have with me because she always wanted people to feel okay. So she would sacrifice her own, you know, needs to make others feel okay. And um, I think we both knew that, that she wasn't going to make it, but no one was saying it out loud. And we had an opportunity to talk about that together. And those, those are the moments and the conversations in life that that really shape what you want. Like I'm a person who wants to be inspired. This was inspiration in the way you never want to have. Um, but one of the things we talked about of many was she loved living life. She would travel around the world and eat all the foods and pet all the dogs and climb all the mountains. It was just who she was. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm just sad. I don't get to keep doing the things that are fun in life. And so she said to me, will you promise that you won't wait to live the life you want to live? And I always cry um, when I tell this part. And I think it's important um, to do that. It's, it comes naturally because <laughs> I, I miss her so much. But um, I, I get to speak at colleges now sometimes. And I look at the men and the women in the room and I say, I've raised over half a million dollars. And I've cried in every pitch I've ever done <laughs> because I bring Lauren with me. <laughs> um, I bring this story with me because it, it matters. I want people to know who she is. I want to um, recognize the contribution she made to what this was and Really what it was, was not Lauren saying, here's an idea for you. Lauren knew that I had this idea in 2011 um, to create a docuseries called Stigma. And it was based on this experience I had my senior year with my thesis project in college. And I just knew I wanted to contribute more stories that were told well, that weren't tragedy porn, that weren't taking advantage of people's suffering to get 
ratings or engagement or clicks or likes. Um, and I couldn't have told you even in December of 2019 that that's what I was going to start doing. I actually just had that moment of, you know, you want to be a documentary filmmaker. You're not doing it because it doesn't pay well. But like, what if you just start trying, like start trying on the side and see what you can do. And I was working for a great startup at the time. Um, I got to like build their brand and run most of the marketing function and creative services and um, consumer insights. So I was learning a lot in my career, um, but I wasn't satisfied because I just, I loved capturing people's stories. That's, that was on my list of, you know, figuring out your purpose chart, that grid of a Venn diagram of four words. What do I love to do? What am I naturally good at? What can I get paid for? And what does the world need? And when you find that, you know, center, it's your purpose. Um, on that list was capturing people's stories and making films. And so I just started by telling my husband's story. Um, and that was important um, because he lives with complex PTSD. He was an orphan who was never adopted. He was in foster care. Um, he was a ward of the state and in just very bad homes. He was abused his entire childhood until he left for college. Um, and so what that left him with was a ton of trauma that he needed to process and, and complex trauma is difficult. Um, so what I knew from living with him was that he was this wonderful soul, wonderful person who was easily triggered. He, um, you know, had many reasons for that. His biological mother did drugs while she was pregnant. And he, you know, there were things that happened to his brain development that I only learned by studying them and reading books like The Body Keeps the Score. And he and I just working together to understand his situation. And I wanted people to understand two things. One, that PTSD isn't always, um, doesn't always only affect veterans or combat veterans. Um, there is that population. I like um, respect the heck out of them and I'm so grateful for them. So this is not to discredit or discount the, their experience. But what we don't, what I don't see people talking about as much is the trauma that comes with growing up in poverty um, or growing up in situations where trauma is in your world, but you're not taught how to process it. And I actually interviewed an MD who um, worked in emergency medicine and ended up moving to creating his own sort of preventative um, healthcare clinics because he said, I don't want to come in at the end and save someone from a heart attack. I want to start early and, and help them learn how to not have it in the first place. And he told me the most important thing I do with my children is teach them how to process trauma because there are big T's and there are little T's. And I think with trauma specifically, people aren't thinking about, um, they, they hear it and they think that it's going to be like a sexual assault or a consistent child abuse um, in your younger years. And those, of course, are traumas, but bullying is a trauma. We have people talk about bullying a fair amount on Stigma app, and that's something that so many young people are going through right now. Um, but the idea being, I just knew I wanted to show people, like, here's what's happening in his brain. Um, when someone is triggered, their presenting behavior might appear to you like they're being rude to you or dismissive. But um, what I've learned, if I've learned anything, one of the biggest takeaways in this experience has been when people behave in a certain way, it is not about you. It's just not. It's about what's going on with them. And you hear those words. And when someone's unkind to you or does something, you're like, I want to channel that energy, but I, my pride and ego makes me react. And I think that people can find a lot of peace in remembering that other people's behavior is about them, not you. Um, so I recorded this story for him just because he wanted to speak at schools. So he had done it at a couple of schools in Chicago, loved the experience sort of talking about overcoming adversity. And so we went out one day, my creative partner, Sean, Robert Kelly, and I, and John, um, we interviewed him. We did B-roll, we shot it all in a day. And it was three days before lockdown. And so I spent the early part of the pandemic editing, just editing, editing. Lauren's health was declining. So I kind of put this time clock on myself of like, get it done so she can see it. Um, 
Fortunately, I did. But as I was editing it, I got it to a point where I thought, okay, I think I'm ready to show this to John because it was his life and he was very open. Um, and he watched it and we finished watching that edit. And he looked at me and he goes, this is stigma. And what, what I said also to young people that I speak to is everyone is different. I'm one person, one data point. But my advice to any person looking for a life partner is find a partner who supports your dreams. Because there are many things that you can use as a criteria to pick a person. But if you are an ambitious person who wants to achieve great things and you meet someone who doesn't have to want to achieve the same things but supports yours, it's this beautiful thing. Because I was definitely in the anticipatory grief stage. I knew it was coming. I was feeling lower than I've ever felt. I had a young baby at home. Um, it was it was a lot all at once. And he saw it. And I thought, it is stigma. Like, this is what I said I was going to do. And so then I turned it into more of stigma. I put the brain development stuff in there. Um, we put graphics to help people understand um, that this sort of connection between the hippocampus and the amygdala is weaker in child abuse survivors and gave data points to back up and sort of validate what we were talking about. Um, and I got to screen that for Lauren um, before, before she passed away, which was beautiful. She was the second person after John to ever see it. Um, she passed away on May 12th, 2020, and we uh, had our premiere of that, um, you know, short or proof of concept for the Stigma docuseries on May 30th. Um, we, the premiere was over YouTube because um, it was, you know, still height of the beginning of this pandemic. Um, and we, I put it on YouTube and it's on Amazon. And suddenly within probably days, I started getting messages from strangers and my husband started getting messages from strangers. And to me, people were saying, um, thank you for creating this platform. Uh, can I share my story? And when are you going to do a story about, and they would insert whatever lived experience they had. And I, that's another thing that I like to call out that um, so few people are talking about these things in public spaces that when you do, it's like you've waved a flag that says I'm safe. So every time I've ever gotten the opportunity to present or do a pitch or do something where there's a, a networking after people coming together, um, people find me and share an experience that they've had. And I love it. I, I don't want people to stop. I appreciate them doing it because we're all carrying this stuff. And it's like, we're not wearing stickers that say, you know, these are the conditions I'm navigating, or this is the life situation that I'm going through right now. Um, but we put this pressure on ourselves to behave in such a way that's perfect. So. Um, I'm getting messages, but getting far more messages was John. Um, and in his episode, John talks about being a child sexual abuse survivor. They say CSA survivor. And um, he got a lot of messages from them that said um, they were basically all to the effect of, I can't believe you talked about it. No one ever talks about it. Uh, same thing happened to me. And a lot of people said, and I've never told anyone until now. A lot of them said, same thing happened to me. But so many of the people who were saying that they were talking about this for the first time were doing it on LinkedIn Messenger. Wow. And when that happened, because I was in the mode of like, people like this, I got to get funding for a docuseries. And that happened. And I was like, oh, man, this is bad. This is bad if people don't have a better place to go. And no discredit to LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. Um, we could talk about that for days. It is hugely valuable to every startup entrepreneur. Um but that's not a place where you can probably get the emotional feedback loop that you're looking for. So that was happening. And I started thinking, okay, what could this be? But John was also continuing the conversation with a lot of these people who said, are you open to a conversation? We can just text or they would just do it over Instagram Messenger or LinkedIn Messenger. And so these people were coming and sharing their stories because they finally had a safe audience where they could put down some of the sort of lead they were carrying in the backpack. 
And he would share his story so that they knew they weren't alone, so that they didn't feel, you know, so they could feel less ashamed and feel, you know, like there was someone who understood. And he did that over and over again. And what I saw in him was a lightness, a change in him that I've described since, like I found a way to, to describe it. And I say that I think he just told his story enough times that it lost a lot of the power it had held over him for so long to elicit that shame. And this is once again to like researcher Brene Brown's teachings, but it validates what she talks about that the two most powerful words one person can say to another are me too. And so that moment was when I thought, now I know what it is. Like now I know what I need to do. I have to create a space for that kind of exchange to happen. And so I started studying the research of a guy named John Cacioppo out of the University of Chicago. Um, He spent 30 years of his life researching loneliness. And what he found was that the two most powerful ways to combat loneliness are cognitive behavioral therapy and reciprocal social connection. And so what's different about um, reciprocal social connection and let's say like traditional therapy, which I love, I have a therapist, she is wonderful, um, but that is not reciprocal because I am paying her to use her degree to help me navigate things. This is the kind of scenario where you do something kind for someone else and they return the favor for no reason other than to be good human beings and you're on your way. Um, And then I started looking into research about how regularly engaging in altruistic behavior improves not just your mental health, but your physical health too. And so I thought, okay, we can do this. I can create a platform for reciprocal social connection, but like, what is it actually doing? And then I remember the day I realized I I took a picture of the, when I was in the coffee shop, I was like, it was all kind of gelling and coming together. And I was like, oh, this is it. I had like read the right study and thought of the right things. And I was like, we're crowdsourcing hope. That's what it is. Because when you feel alone and lonely and struggling, you have less hope. And at sort of the extreme level, you are hopeless. Um, but when someone says, Hey, Gina, I see you, me too. We've been, I've been through that same thing. You've got this, I promise. You get living proof that you're not alone. And you also get that understanding of it's the reminder that even if today's a bad day, she's okay. And she's been through it. And she said she's had bad days. And now she's in a good spot because the hardest part about mental struggles, because people sort of straight, like, don't like the word mental illness, unfortunately. And I could talk about that a little too if you want. But, um, the hardest part is that many of them kind of trick your brain. So they say about depression, like it convinces you that you're the only one that feels this way and you're not. It's like, there's a huge percentage of the population that at some point has experienced depression, if not major depressive disorder, you know, um, dysthymia and like the sort of persistent low level depression. Um, So the idea is, can we create very human feeling interactions in a world that is more digital um, for people so that they believe they're not alone. And so that when they're in that moment of struggle, um, they can still go to their therapist on Fridays if that's what they do to have great weekends. Um, but if this is a Tuesday and they're struggling, they can tap into a network of people who signed up to be there to help. So it's not bugging your friend who has to get her kids ready for school in the morning, asking her to build you on a Tuesday before work. It's tapping into the stigma community. Oh boy. Uh, Ariana, I, I feel like I have so... First of all, like I laughed, I cried, <laughs> I came with you on that journey. I've heard you tell the story of, of Lauren now like three separate times and every single time, this was my third time, every single time I, I've, I've cried too. I don't think it'll ever, I mean, I feel it with you. So thank you so much for sharing that story and for sharing and to your husband for sharing his story and, and just all of this work that you've done. So as we're, as we're sort of talking about stigma the platform and also stigma the concept. Can you talk through the difference between living with that sort of that shame and shadows 
and living outside of stigma? What what kind of happens to a person when they're set free from stigma? I mean, I think that um, probably everyone has had some experience in life where there's something that you're not talking about, and it doesn't have to be a mental illness. It can be some experience you're having. I've had a number of people ask me, is divorce going to be a category that's added to stigma? Because it's something that's really hard. It's, it's for most people, never something that's quick. Um, there are, you know, experiences and years and conversations and fights and all the stuff that you're going through that maybe you're not talking about. So I think, you know, as we think through what stigma means, it's important for me, like the reason I picked the name stigma was that I wanted it to be inclusive of not just what we would term mental illnesses, but also just conditions that are misunderstood. And to your point about Lauren, grief is one of them. Um, I am not a believer in five stages of grief. I think everyone experiences grief a different way. I think it never goes away, um, but you just kind of learn how to manage. And I would say that like, that's kind of the tie I can make to this idea of stigma is that we're never going to fully eradicate stigma. Like I say that the mission of stigma is to reduce loneliness and the stigma associated with mental illness and other misunderstood conditions, because um, it is, there's a, a really great book that's dense, but great called Paradigms Lost. And it talks about the origin of stigma and the origin of stigma around mental health. Um, but I think the more people talk about it, the more open people feel about sharing their own experience and then the lighter they get to feel. So we can minimize and diminish um, to a big degree stigma, but we have to figure out it's like a, a multi um, sort of faceted approach and it has to be societal. We have to have like um, laws that, that support people who are navigating different things. But I think on the highest level, um, People want to be the best version of themselves. I think people who are in a healthy spot are not trying to be someone else. They just want to be happy, for lack of a better phrase. There are a lot of books about happy and apps called happy. And, you know, happy is a word that, um, that some people love and some people hate. But I would argue that the average human being is just hoping to be the best version of themselves. And so when I interview people at our mental health pop-ups, which is how we get the content for our TikTok channel that has a nice following and our Instagram and things like that. And then we share those stories. The full stories are only shared on our website, which is www.thestigma.app. Um, we, in those interviews, ask people, what does a good day look like? And what does a bad day look like? And don't just tell me what it looks like. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're doing. And what I often find is people will say, on a bad day, I can't get out of bed. And then I push because I say the way the world is right now, we're so new at talking about this that we speak in sort of vague statements because it's like it's brave enough to even say that you were depressed and couldn't get out of bed. But now we're done. Now we're not talking about it anymore. But the truth is the more concrete and descriptive we can be with what that experience is like, the more we help younger audiences understand and learn the vocabulary to express what they're feeling, um, but the more other people feel seen. So when someone says that statement, I say, can you, can we dig in a little more? Can you be specific? So if you can't get out of bed, are you staring at the ceiling? Do you scroll on your phone? Do you watch TV all day and binge watch, you know, Netflix? Um, and then people get into it and then you learn like, oh no, for someone who can't get out of bed, they actually do get out of bed and they go to their job and they manage a huge team and they overperform and they pick up the kids from school and they do all of the things but they're just on the inside feeling exhausted or fatigued or whatever it might be, or having panic attacks and, you know, going to the bathroom to deal with that because there's stuff going on where other people will say, I don't bathe. I don't eat. I don't look at any kind of media. I just am there. And so what I think matters too, is that just like physical health, and this is the, you know, analogy people will make all the time, but just like physical health, what works to maintain your mental health for each person is different. So I always give the example for physical health, 
my husband does jujitsu. He was a wrestler before. He's really into jujitsu. I don't ever want to get in a physical fight. I have zero desire to do it. You will not see me in the jujitsu room. Um, but I like the room. yoga room. It's probably there's, I'm sure there's a better word. <laughs> room. Um, no, room is perfect. Room is the jujitsu room. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, like people understand that concept that like. Some people eat keto and some are vegetarian. Some people do jujitsu. Some people run. And we accept that as like, they're doing these things for their physical health. But with mental health, because it's so not talked about, we, we need to crowdsource that information as well. So there are really cool platforms that I've seen where um, people are crowdsourcing um, like the medications that they take. They're willingly sharing this for the, the conditions that they have. But I actually had a really fascinating call with a PsyD yesterday who told me like, we ruined things. And if you read, um, his name is Incel. He's a doctor who was like the mental health doctor. I can never remember his first name, but he has a book called Healing that just came out. I'm listening to it on Audible. It's great. Um, but a lot of mental health professionals will say like, we went about this the wrong way because we were too clinical in our focus. We were too medical about it. And so what I've seen anecdotally in interviewing people is that some people are very happy to have been given a label. They're like, as soon as I was told I'm bipolar, um, I didn't believe it at first. I didn't want it to be the case, but once I accepted it, I looked at these, you know, um, symptoms and, uh, got the right medicine and my life was made better because of it. And some people really don't like the labels because they don't want to be just put in the category of every other person. I think that's the dangerous part. That's the, my dad in, you know, the eighties and nineties, um, schizophrenia, if you were called that you were the guy on law and order. Um, so part of what matters so much in making this societal change is contributing more stories to the public conversation that show us varying um, degrees and levels of, of what it's like to live with conditions that people don't understand. That uh, that tracks with me. That's really interesting, the piece about being too clinical. I, I remember a personal story coming at you. When I was actually diagnosed with PTSD, like four years ago, five years, whatever, some amount of years ago, I remember thinking in that moment, like, Will I always have it? it? Will it go away? When will I be better? Because it's it's kind of like a what is the prognosis? As soon as you have a diagnosis, you want to know what the prognosis is. What will I be better? Can I be better? What's the future? Um, so that is really interesting because we we kind of live with this stuff. <laughs> I think they maybe avoided telling us you're going to live with these feelings and you can manage it. I mean, I think um, I've interviewed people as well who like parents of um, young people who are navigating. So we have that proof of concept of the stigma app. And then we did the next kind of episode one, which is called Stay. Um, that one is not on Amazon. It's only on YouTube. But it's the story of a young man who um, started feeling suicidal ideations when he was eight and telling his parents. And they had sort of done everything they knew how to do to create a loving environment. And so it's this parent's story of, of navigating that experience of how do you find doctors in a time where there are three month waits for child psychiatrists? And how do you deal with the stigma of people around you? And you medicate a child so that he is safe and everyone in your family judges. And I think, um, you know, I, I point to that one because Jennifer, the mother in that story talks about if my son was diabetic, no one would say, have you tried taking him off his meds? Have you tried not giving him the insulin? Because it's hard to figure out mental health for adults and children. And I think that's another thing, you know, when someone um, opens up and says that they are on medication, which I see zero shame in medication, to be clear, um, but some people judge it. So when people say that, I say, will you talk to me about your experience? Did you immediately find what you needed? Because the other thing I think that's sort of a misconception is once you get to a point where you go to a doctor, you're healed. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way because it's complex. So you may go on medication, you may not, but even if you do, 
it might not be the right med. It might not be the right dosage. And it might take six weeks for it to, for you to even know if it's right or wrong. And so I like doing as much as we can to set expectations for people in these interviews that we do. That's why the story component is so big. Like the on-demand ability to be a kind human every day, offering hope. Like I see a future where people make offering hope to a stranger in need as common a daily mental health practice as journaling or meditation. I think it is totally realistic. There is science to back up that it's great for you and great for them. Um, but can we get people to regularly do that? I hope so. And that's what we're working on. But the other piece of it is we know people are consuming content. We are a world that consumes content. And there was a study done in 2018 by um, Wellbeing Trust and Hope Labs where they surveyed 14 to 22 year olds living with depression. And they said, um, when you need help for your mental health, where do you go? And of course, 90% said the first place I go is online. That is not surprising at all. And they said, what is, when you go online, what's the number one type of support you're looking for? And 75% of these kids said stories of people like me. They wanted podcasts, they wanted blogs, they wanted videos. And so part of how we attract our target demographic, um, which is Gen Z, is by giving them the thing that they want, by saying, you were looking for stories, here we have them, and they're curated, and they're thoughtful, and they're not going to trigger you. And if they do, here's a grounding exercise series in case you need it, because we did our best, but you know we're human. Um, but I think that's the piece that consumption of those stories to be able to expose yourself and, you know, on our, on our stigma stories platform, you can filter by condition. So the story of four different people with PTSD who all had different childhoods, who all had different, um, racial, ethnic origin, age, sexuality, religion, like it's, it matters for people to tell stories about living with things that are kind of blanket understood as whatever that, you know, condition looks like on TV and say, no, it, it actually is something different in every person. So um, I kind of rambled there, but I feel like it's important to understand that um, by by sharing our stories and telling people, this is what it's like for me, you can find your people and your tribe, um, but you can also help people who are struggling get the vocabulary they need and get sort of an understanding of perhaps where to start to get on that path to, to healing. It's, it's really interesting because I think there, I want to make sure we cover two things before we go, because I think the, the safety of sharing within a platform like stigma is so important. I don't know, Ariana, if, if you or your husband or anyone in your world has had the experience of sharing something traumatic or something from their past and having it not go well. Um, can, <laughs> can you speak to sort of the importance of this safe space? Yeah. So um, thank you for asking that question. My husband, um, you know, is in so many ways, like really such a key part of stigma being in existence and what it is because he was the first person to be brave enough to say, I'm going to put it out there. Um, so his story is on YouTube. That first proof of concept is called stigma strong. And for the most part, everything on there is kind, but he also has a YouTube channel um, and his YouTube channel is true story with John Gibson. And he does it because he wanted to interview people that were his heroes when he was a kid, when he was a child being physically abused. Um, he wanted to be able to protect himself. So he got into weightlifting. So then he started fixating on like WWF and he had these heroes in the space and then UFC and all this stuff. So he interviews these people and he puts himself out there and just talks about it. And he's had, um, uh, two videos that have gotten a, a lot of traction. One's called I'm Sad and one's called I'm Struggling. And it's just like a direct address to camera. It's kind of what you do on, on Stigma app, but he did it publicly on YouTube. And some of the things that people write are so hateful. You like, he won't even show them to me because he's like, I don't want you to have to carry this. And so for him, I think, you know, the, the sort of problem I saw before building Stigma app in the world of sharing your stories, which we need to do is that on a public forum, which is any social site, so Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Snap, anything, 
there isn't someone moderating every comment. And so you open yourself up to the possibility that someone will be hateful. And again, it's on them. It's not you. It's them. But whatever pain they're in is causing them to say something that could be really hurtful if you're in the wrong mood. So the thing with Stigma app that we do is every single message that is ever, you know, every video that is ever uploaded, like I said, it's text, audio, and video clips, but whatever the format is moderated before it's ever publicly posted or shared. And what that means is we're trying to be the safest place online that people can go to talk about their mental health. Um, So let's say that you shared a story about your PTSD diagnosis and said something like, I'm looking for some support from other women who have gone through this. And someone was having a bad day because I don't think that people are, you know, the product of their worst day. You are not your worst action you've ever taken. Um, But let's say someone's having a day where they're having um, a manic episode or their first psychotic break or it just is bad timing, right? And they send something hateful. Not only will you not see it, you'll never know it was coming your way. Because we're in the middle saying we're the gatekeepers of like, this place is for hope. We have a zero tolerance policy on bullying. Um, I experienced bullying both in middle school and in the workplace. And it's not okay, but it's sort of hard to police. So because I feel strongly as a former bullied person, um, the zero tolerance policy at Sigma is that if you violate that policy and you bully someone, you are banned. However, we will let you back in if you submit 50 hours of third-party verifiable community service, because that's the way that you show people, I believe in you. I know you made a mistake. You say that you don't mean it. Prove to me that you're committed to kindness and to giving to others. And we'd love to have you back in, because I think that's the other thing, that there are certain conditions that make people behave in a way that make them feel ashamed. And I won't label them, but like just from the interviews I've done and some of the asks for help I've seen recently, there are certain conditions I see that more, um, where people are they do something and they wish they hadn't done it, but they can't take it back and their friend group gets smaller. Um, And so in those scenarios, those people are saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that way. I'm trying to figure out how to control this. And so I think it's also important to have a lot of compassion um, for people who, who might be struggling. But having said that, this is too important to not protect people. Um, So that moderation piece is, is really important for us. Yeah, that cap, I I refer to it as the capital S share, a big share, (laughs) because when you're, when you're sort of sharing the big thing um, and you're not, and you're not certain that you're in a a safe environment, you're, you're kind of waiting for it to land, but it, it sounds like you've, you've built the safety net. So, you know, that, and the other thing about a capital S share is most of the time people don't go first, like John, your husband, they wait for John, your husband um, to go first. And then they jump in and say, yeah, me too. So I just think, I think it's exactly what you were saying before, but incredibly powerful to hear that you've built this safe space in so many ways. Okay, Ariana, before we forget, we sort of built a little microcosm of a stigma during the Sweatworking Summit, which just happened over the weekend. It's wild. I, I want to call out a couple things. So we saw um, a lot of people share before the session that you sort of co-led with Erin Bahadur, and we also had um, the support of a mental health practitioner, a clinician, uh, Sarah Kelly. But we saw people share ahead of the session a lot of what you're talking about on the Stigma app. It was divorces. It was a lot of trying to conceive and and trouble with that. Um, It was a lot of, like, I'm being medicated. Um, And then the comments would erupt. Um, as we sort of shared those anonymous things publicly, people would say like, I'm taking Lexapro and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, I, I should share the comments with you. It was miraculous. So any sort of, um, reactions from that experience, anything you took away or anything that sort of mirrored, um, what you see in stigma? 
I mean, I'll say the first word that came to mind when you asked the question was gratitude to you for creating the space because that, that that's the job. The job truly is to create safe spaces for people to have those conversations. And so, um, you know, when you kind of break down for stigma, we say like, you know, our mission is to normalize conversations about mental health um, and reduce the, the stigma and the loneliness and all those things. But how do we do that? We create safe spaces, both online and in person for people to do that. So first and foremost, gratitude to you for coming up with the idea and creating that space for people, because it is like we talked about, it's that lightness. When someone gets to, when they're, to your point, someone else has gone first and Erin did such a wonderful job sharing her experience. And I think she was the John in that scenario. You know what I mean? She was the one saying, I'm going to tell you all the details and this is what it is. Um, when you get to watch someone share something that you could in a different context think um, that that person must feel ashamed and they say it without shame, it's because Erin has been you know, so good at telling her story so that people understand they're, they're, you don't have to, you're wasting time being ashamed of previous behavior that maybe you wish you could change. What you can focus on is the future. So Erin set it up well. And then I think when people hit send, like it's that moment. So you said like you're waiting for it to land. They don't have to wait as long because as soon as they do it, someone else does it. And that's why like I opened so many pitches and presentations with forcing people to raise their hand if they have experienced mental illness. And I, the first time I ever did it, it was I was waiting for it to land. I had my hand up in the air and it was a room full of VCs at a you know pitch thing. And it was, um, it was nerve wracking. But when you see people do it, like you saw in the comments, people then start to go, okay. And as soon as someone has put that thing out that they think, oh my God, oh my God, I feel ashamed. Should I have sent that? And then someone else does it and three more people back it up. They get to like breathe a sigh of relief a little bit. They go, oh, it really wasn't as bad. And that's just, it's like physical exercise. The first time you do a squat, if you've never done a squat, it's really hard and your balance is off and you can't go that low. But over time, you're like, whoa, I can do these like amazingly low things and my strength is increasing. And I think that's the same thing with mental health and talking about it. We just have people have to give people the the gyms, so to speak, the safe spaces for them to practice that. And you created that in that presentation. It was it was lovely. It was a pleasure to see it come to life too. Um, after I, I spoke with you the first time a couple of months ago, I could I could hear your vision for the future, and I just wanted everyone else from a sweat life to hear it too. So, speaking of vision for the future, Ariana, what do you want to see stigma become? Um, I know it's it's already here, but wh- where is it going? Um, so, I think that the the most um, the most exciting thing we can do is. Um, attract enough people that it starts to have a ripple effect in your life outside of stigma. So like, yes, I want everyone to be on stigma's platform. Um, I want them to be sharing and sharing with each other and asking for hope and offering hope. Um, But the idea is that if you do that enough times, then the next time you're at a networking event and you feel anxious, you can say, you know what, I'm feeling kind of anxious. I think I'm going to head home and it's okay. And you're not headed to the bar to get, you know, more whiskey so that you can make sure that like you've numbed those feelings. Um, So I think that like, Maybe cheesy to say, um, but like the vision for the future of stigma is that it changes the way people think about mental illness and mental health um, and helps like be part of a societal shift in deeper compassion for others' lived experiences. I love this. Uh, okay, shameless plug. Tell us everywhere to find you and the Stigma app. Awesome. So the website is thestigma.app.app. Um, that's also our handle on TikTok and on Instagram. So at thestigma.app. What I tell people is if you heard any of this, if any part of you likes the idea or thinks that I'm a nice enough human that you're like, I will help this woman out, um, please just go create an account. So create an account is free and you can go create the account 
and offer someone hope. And I ask people to do that because it's easier to offer someone kindness than it is to say, I'm struggling and could use some support. Remember that you can do it via text, audio, or video. So it can be truly almost entirely anonymous. We ask for your first name, but you're allowed to put whatever name you want. Um, But what I found has happened is that people who joined in that spirit, who said, I'll do it, I'll create an account, I'll offer someone hope, will two weeks later be having a hard day and go, you know what, I'm going to try it. And the response I get from people who say, I wish I tried this sooner. Like, I didn't think I would ever use it, but I did. That happened this week. And it was just beautiful. It was beautiful to see someone who didn't think they would be comfortable doing this, do it and get these messages that were so powerful in response. And and this person said it was a bad day and it turned into a great day. And we had something to do with that. So I want to create that for anyone who's listening to this. Oh, I love that. Ariana, thank you so much for joining me on We Got Goals. Thank you. This has been another episode of We Got Goals and a sweatlife.com production, which is another thing that's better with friends. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing, to Ryan Barayuga for creating the video version of the podcast, and to you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. The name of this show is the hashtag We Got Goals. Yes, the hashtag, no spaces. Uh, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love this episode, give us a rating. We love five stars. Five stars.